afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friend. I'd like to uh, welcome you all to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar, especially for joining us in Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 15. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again tonight, we ask that your precious Holy Spirit will bring us the understanding, the guidance and the wisdom we need to rightly understand these amazing prophecies. Bless us, Lord, as we go into Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 to understand more about living in these last days. And I thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 15. I'm starting at the top of page two. If you've just joined us and you don't have access to a lesson, that's fine. Everything will be on the screen. And I want you to sit back and relax and enjoy God's word. In the last two lessons that you can see on the screen, 13 and 14, we have studied Daniel's amazing prophecy of the pre-advent judgment that began in 1844. We have discovered that the 2300-day year prophecy began in 457 BC during the Medo-Persian realm and ended in AD 1844 with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Well, in the last lesson, we examined carefully the Old Testament sanctuary. That was lesson 14. And that service that pointed forward to the ministry of Christ. We found that the three sections of the sanctuary pointed forward to the three phases of the ministry of Christ. The courtyard we discovered represented Christ's work of sacrifice. The holy place his work of intercession and his prayers for us. And thirdly, the most holy place where his work of final judgment will take place. The work of the courtyard and the holy place performed in the ancient Jewish sanctuary every day was known as the daily. It was known as the daily sacrifice, the daily offering or the daily service. Now, the work of the most holy place performed by the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year was known as the yearly, the yearly sacrifice, the yearly service, or the yearly offering. So the cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament referred to Christ's work of final judgment, which Daniel 8.14 indicates will begin at the end of the 2300-year prophecy in 1844. So in this lesson, we wish to examine the whole concept of the judgment 
as it appears in Daniel 7 and 8 and Daniel 9. In fact, the pre-advent judgment seems to be the focal point of these three chapters. So friends, we've got an amazing revelation from God's word for you tonight. I have five theme questions that I've added into the lesson. Number one, what exactly is the pre-advent judgment? Secondly, when did it exactly begin? Thirdly, why does the sanctuary need to be cleansed? Fourth, why does the little horn power get judged? And fifthly, do we ever stand alone during the heavenly judgment? So thank you so much for joining me. We're in lesson 15 and we're halfway down page two. And our heading tonight is the sequence of Daniel 7. So tonight we're going to go into a bit of revision, a bit of repetition. And I think that's always good because it's going to bring back some of the highlights because tonight is our last time in Daniel 7 and 8 before we move on to more sections um, of the series and possibly um, delving into the book of Revelation and the New Testament a lot more. Question one says, give the biblical symbol from Daniel 7 for each of the powers mentioned below. Now, we're not going to read all of Daniel 7, 1 to 8. So let's just jump into verse 4 in the book of Daniel. And Daniel wrote about the four beasts that came out of the great sea. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I'm sure you all remember from uh, lesson number nine that we went to Babylon. We saw the winged lion. And it's interesting here that Babylon lasted as a kingdom for exactly 66 years. Did you remember that the um, Babylonian system, uh, the numerical system was based on 6 and 60 and 666? But I must not get waylaid on that tonight. Give the biblical symbol from Daniel 7 for each of the powers mentioned below. What about Medo-Persia? Remember the story of the bear. Daniel 7 verse 5, and suddenly Daniel writes another beast. This is after the lion came up. It was a second one like a bear. And you'll remember that the bear was raised up on one side, which reminds us of, of course, the kingdoms, the dual empires of Medo and Persia, the Medes and Persians. And so the Medo-Persian empire lasts for 208 years. We hurry on to the third kingdom of Greece. How do we understand Greece? In Daniel 7 verse 6, and after this Daniel wrote, I looked and there was another, another beast. It was like a leopard. This is the four-headed flying leopard. And it stands for the great nation of Greece under its first king. And of course, Greece ruled from 331 to 168 BC, which was quite a bit of time about three times the time of Babylon, so it's about 163 years. What's the biblical symbol for pagan Rome? We go to Daniel 7, 7 in two parts. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. So friends, pagan Rome is described as this iron beast. This matches also the image of Daniel 2, exact lineup of the same kingdoms. So pagan Rome ruled from 168 BC and took over from Greece 
to 476 AD. It ruled for 644 years. Well, what was the biblical symbol in Daniel 7 for a divided Europe? In the second half of Daniel 7.7, Daniel wrote that the Iron Kingdom of Rome, the nondescript beast, it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And notably, it had what? It had 10 horns. There's our answer. Did you remember that the 10 toes in Daniel 2 of the metal man matched the 10 kings of the 10 horns of this beast, which represent the 10 nations or the 10 kingdoms of Europe. And then finally, the papacy. We're looking uh, for what that means, a sim biblical symbol in Daniel 7 for the power of the Church of Rome followed the Empire of Rome. Daniel said, I was sit considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one. He was coming up among them. So this is described, the papacy, the Church of Rome is described as the little horn power. And it ruled from 538 to 1798. Now you may want to be just jotting down some of those kingdoms. So Babylon in the gold ruled for 66 years. Medo-Persia in the silver, I'm going off the medals from the metal man in Daniel 2, 208 years, pretty much three times the time that Babylon ruled. Then we have Greece, which is 163 years, which is two and a half times the time of Babylon. Then we have pagan Rome at 644 years, a huge amount of time. But even that is dwarfed by papal Rome which lasted from 538 to 1798 or 1260 years. And then after all of these empires and kingdoms comes God's judgment time. And that's what we're here to understand tonight. Question two, we're at the bottom of page two. What is the next scene that Daniel beholds after the papal power holds sway over the earth? We go to Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Daniel wrote, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And here's our answer, the punchline. The court was seated and the books were open. So this is the next scene that Daniel beholds after all of those beast powers. And then after the little horn power comes, the court was seated and the books were open. I like the King James Version, which says the judgment was seated and the books were opened. Notice very clearly the sequence here in Daniel 7. Daniel portrays the panorama of the nations, each one following the other. Now, the next great scene that Daniel beholds after the reign of the little horn power is none other than the judgment scene. Just have a look on the screen. I just want to show you here where we are in prophecy time. So we're at the end of the 2300 day year prophecy, which takes us to AD 1844 which is the time when the judgment began, when Jesus moved from the holy place into the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. It's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That you and I today are living in the time of the judgment. 
So, friends, I just want to remind you that when I pray and when I confess my sins, I'm continually reminded in my heart of what Jesus is doing for me right now. And that makes a difference to the way I live, and it makes a big difference to the way I pray. Question three at the top of page three, Daniel repeats the sequence of empires a second time in Daniel 7. Name the three powers he now mentions. Daniel 7.19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. There's our first answer, which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn, I've put in brackets there, the little horn power, which came up before which three horns fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Daniel repeats the sequence of empires a second time in chapter 7. We've got repetition and expansion taking place. We have the fourth beast, which is pagan Rome. We have the ten horns that come out of the divided Europe after the breakup of the pagan Roman Empire. And then we have the other little horn, which is papal Rome. Question four, how long does the little horn power prevail against the saints? We go to Daniel 7, 21 and 22. Daniel wrote, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. That is such good news. So how long does the little horn power prevail against the saints until... The Ancient of Days, our God comes and a judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. You can't get better news than that. The note says, here again we find Daniel emphasising the fact that the little horn power prevails over the minds of men until the Ancient of Days God came and the judgment began. We're in question five of the sequence of Daniel 7. In the third giving of this sequence in Daniel 7, Daniel again mentions the fourth beast, pagan Rome, the ten horns, the ten divisions of the Roman Empire, and the little horn power, papal Rome. What event does Daniel foretell at the end of those verses? We're in Daniel 7, 23 to 26. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break in pieces. So Daniel here accounts the trajectory of the fourth beast, which is the iron kingdom of Rome. The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So we have the 10 horns, we're doing a repetition and expansion. We're doing revision. We're doing summarization of where we've been in lessons nine and 13. The 10 horns are 10 kings, the 10 nations of Europe, but a little horn power comes up to disrupt and remove three of them. 
In Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend or think he can change God's times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Friends, tonight's lesson on the judgment is good news and bad news. Say it with me. Tonight's lesson on the judgment is good news and bad news. That is the theme of our lesson tonight. In fact, my last story is about good news and bad news. Stick around for that. Now, I want to tell you that Daniel 7.25 is bad news, but Daniel 7.26 is good news. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Friends, that's great news. Now, what about that court? Here is the high court of our land where we live. It says here, the court shall be seated. What court is that? That's the court up there. So what would we call that? We have a high court here in Australia. So I'm suggesting the heavenly court, the court in heaven, must be the most high court, the court of the most high God. Friends, can I just tell you, if you are getting any legal decisions down here that are wrong, that are evil, that are against you, and you are in a position of innocence, then I want to tell you, you can appeal to the Most High Court, the Heavenly Court, the Court of the Most High God, because that is in session right now. God hears, God answers our prayers, and you are not alone. God bless you. So what event does Daniel foretell here? Well, we just saw it. The court shall be seated. The King James says the judgment shall be seated. And so it's the judgment. All right. We now go to the note under question five. Three times in one chapter, Daniel has gone through the same sequence of nations from Daniel's day to the end of the world. In each case, he ends with the judgment scene. The judgment scene always follows the reign of the little horn power. Question six, how long does the little horn power reign in Daniel 7 and verse 25? Then the saints shall be given into his, the little horn power's hand for a time and times and half a time. I'm sure you remember that from Prophecy Seminar lesson number nine. Please have a look on the screen as we revise. The time, times, and half a time equals or adds up to 1260 days or 1260 prophetic years. We did that in lesson nine. The 1260 years began with the destruction of the last of the three powers that prevented the papacy from having full supremacy. So the little horn power uprooted three horns, the Heruli in 493, the Vandals, in AD 534, which were there in North Africa, and the Ostrogoths were finally destroyed in AD 538. The decree of Justinian, which gave the Pope power in the West, was finally put into effect in AD 538. I'll stop there and read the note on the screen. In 538 AD, the Roman Emperor Justinian legally recognized the supremacy of the Pope, making him head over all the churches he made him the definer of doctrines and the corrector of heretics. So I have a, a, a map tonight to make this easy for you to visualize. So there's Rome. And on the left-hand side of the screen 
in uh, ancient Europe, we have the Western Empire of Rome. Then when Justinian fled Rome across to the Magenta area, which is the Eastern Empire of Rome in Constantinople, which is of course Istanbul today, the Empire of Rome split into two, into the Western and the Eastern Empire. And I think that just makes it a little easier to see the division that came. And that was prophesied in Daniel chapter two by, as you remember, the two iron legs of Rome. In 1798, 1260 years later, French General Berthier, under orders from Napoleon, took the Pope prisoner, ending the temporal sovereignty of the Pope and fulfilling to the very year the 1260 year prophecy. Daniel 7 predicted that this little horn power would control and dominate the saints for this 1260 year period. And when this period was over, God would convene the judgment. That's why Daniel sees the judgment scene coming right after the reign of this little horn power. From Daniel 7, we can learn that the judgment occurs sometime after 1798. Daniel 8 gives us the final details which pinpoint exactly when the judgment begins. And so, friends, are you aware that 1844 is the last formal date the scripture gives us? So we are living certainly in the time of the end. 1844 is the last date that's given in scripture. Would you join me at the top of page four? We have a new heading, the sequence of Daniel 8. Please look at the screen. In Daniel 8, we notice that Daniel repeats the same sequence as Daniel 7 for a fourth time. This constant repetition was to vividly impress upon our minds the importance of the sequence of the events leading up to the judgment. So the book of Daniel is written with repetition and expansion, starting small, building large, starting small, building large. And so further details are added in each chapter. And that's a fantastic way of learning so that you don't get the whole bucket of wheat at one time. That's not a way to feed the chooks, is it? Question seven, give the interpretation of the symbols listed below. Now, we've already covered this extensively uh, two lessons ago in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13. So we're going to fly through this section without a lot of comment. If you're unsure of this section, maybe you less you missed lesson number 13, which is on the screen, Daniel's longest time prophecy. So we're asked to give the interpretation of the ram. Daniel 8.20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. There's our answer. The ram stands for Medo-Persia, the dual empire. Give the interpretation of the symbol listed below, the he-goat. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece in Daniel 8.21. So the he-goat is Greece. What about the goat's notable horn? Who does that stand for? Daniel 8.21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Friends, I'm going to read on to Daniel 8.7. There was no power in the ram. The ram was who? Medo-Persia to withstand him, the hairy goat, you can see him on the screen there, the hairy goat, which is Greece, 
And he, the hairy goat, Greece, cast him, the ram, Medo-Persia, down to the ground, as you can see, and trampled on him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Before we go to the answer, why was there no one that could deliver Medo-Persia from the hand of Greece? So I've gone looking for some pictures and I've come up with a picture that probably comes from a computer game. Here are the soldiers of the Medo-Persian Empire. I want you to notice how they're dressed. They're actually dressed for battle. Although they have spears, they have no armor. They have no helmet. And notice their shields are made of wicker. Friends, I want to tell you that they are going to be in major trouble facing this. This is the Greek phalanx of Alexander the Great, the 16-foot spears. They have a tank coming at them. Spears up in the middle, spears out at the front, spears out of the sides. It's like a prickly porcupine rushing over you and you're getting impaled. So now you can understand as we go back why no one could deliver Medo-Persia from the hand of the hairy goat, Greece. Give the interpretation of the symbols listed below in Daniel 8. The goat's notable horn was Alexander the Great. Well, after Alexander died, what happened? There are four horns that came up. What do we learn about that in Daniel 8? Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. That horn stands for Alexander the Great, who died in Babylon in 323 BC, as we've spoken of earlier. We read on Daniel 8, verse 8, part B. And in place of the big notable horn, Alexander the Great, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. That is north, south, east and west. As for the broken horn and the four horns that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power, meaning not with the power of the broken horn, who was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had no descendants, and so it broke up into the king of the south, Ptolemy. He ruled Egypt. Another one of Alexander's generals was Seleucus, and he ruled Syria. Now, I want to just explain something here. All the countries in Scripture are all described in relationship to Israel. So you can see there Jerusalem in the middle of the map. Jerusalem is and Israel lie between the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, who's Egypt. I thought you'd find that interesting in terms of the king of the north and king of the south imagery that pops up in scripture and uh, later in Daniel 11, which we'll get to. Up in the uh, northwest, we have Cassander, the third general, and up in the northeast, we have Lysimachus, who took over Thrace. So there are the four generals. The four horns that came up were simply the four divisions, the four generals of Greece. Well, what about the little horn power? Does he come up in Daniel 8? He certainly does in verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Who was this? Firstly, it was the pagan Roman Empire began its world conquest in Macedonia in Greece 
in 168 BC. From there, Rome took and pushed south. It took over Egypt. It then went east and conquered Syria. It then subjugated and defeated the pleasant land of Judea or Israel. I love that the uh, Jewish leaders went out when they met Alexander. I think I already told you this in a previous lesson. And instead of fighting him and uh, harassing him, they said, what took you so long? And he said, what? What do you mean? They said, we knew you were coming from the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. We knew that the great horn was coming. So friends, here we can see how pagan Rome took over those three areas. So the little horn in its first phase stands for pagan Rome. But it has a second phase when it waxes great. When the little horn waxes great in Daniel 8 verse 10, and the little horn grew up, the King James says it waxed great to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of God's people, the stars to the ground and trampled them. Friends, that's very, very significant. And so I'm going to answer that now. How did it hurt some of God's stars and some of the people of God's kingdom here on the earth? In W.H. Leckie's book, The History of the Rise and Influence of the Spirit of Rationalism in Europe, volume 2, page 4045, this is what he wrote. The Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind and will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. Friends, the little horn power did a huge work from 538 to 1798 to wear out, to persecute, to destroy the saints of the Most High. Give the interpretation of the symbols listed below. The little horn power waxed great. The little horn power stood for the Church of Rome who followed pagan Rome, and that is papal Rome. Notice again how Daniel has repeated the sequence in Daniel 7, but he's added a few details. Question 8, according to Daniel 8, what is the next thing that happens after the reign of the little horn power? So in Daniel 8, 13, 14, Daniel has a vision and he overhears two angels speaking in heaven. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? The answer came to him through Gabriel. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The word cleansed also means to be restored to its rightful state, to be unpolluted of all the sins, to set the world right from the evil that has been done on the earth against God's heavenly sanctuary. The cleansing of the sanctuary is parallel to the judgment of Daniel 7. The judgment scene is the event that follows the reign of the little horn. In Daniel 8, the event pictured is the cleansing of the sanctuary. From our study of the ancient Jewish sanctuary, we have learned, however, that the cleansing of the sanctuary referred to the work of judgment. 
Whereas Daniel 7 gave us the approximate time for the beginning of the judgment, which is sometime after 1798, Daniel 8 gives us the exact details and it starts at the end of the 2300 days in AD 1844. Friends, rather than read question nine at the bottom of the page, turn over to the top of page five and just have a look on the screen. I'm going to read that section of question um, nine at the bottom of the page. Notice in the chart how Daniel 7 and 8 parallel each other. So let's have a look. In Daniel 7, we have a line. In Daniel 8, we have nothing. Babylon's not referred to primarily. And so the lion is Babylon. In Daniel 7, we have the bear. In Daniel 8, it's called a ram. And the interpretation is the bear and the ram give more details about Medo-Persia. In Daniel 7, we have a four-headed flying leopard. In Daniel 8, we have a hairy he-goat who comes from the west so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. I think he's turbocharged. And so the leopard and the he-goat are God's cartoons. They're his symbols for Greece. In Daniel 7, we have the four heads coming out of the nation of Greece. In Daniel 8, we have the four horns, and the interpretation is they are the four divisions of Greece into four kingdoms ruled by the four generals of Alexander. In Daniel 7, we have a nondescript beast. Some commentators think this is a dragon. It's not described, but it's a dreadful and terrible beast. In Daniel 8, the little horn that comes out of that is highlighted, and this stands for pagan Rome in its first phase. In Daniel 7, we run into the 10 horns, and these are the 10 divisions of Rome. And then in Daniel 7, we have the little horn power. In Daniel 8, that same horn power now waxes great, and this stands for papal Rome. Now, what event follows the little horn in Daniel 7, the little horn waxing great in Daniel 8? What follows the work of papal Rome? Have a look on the screen down the bottom. In Daniel 7, we have the judgment began. The court was seated. The judgment takes place. In Daniel 8, it's referred to as the cleansing of the sanctuary, of mopping up, of setting things right. The interpretation of both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 is that this is a pre-Advent judgment. Advent is an old English word which means an event, a second coming. And so the pre-advent, SCC, stands for second coming of Christ. Please pardon my shorthand. I couldn't fit in second coming of Christ there. So this is a pre-advent second coming judgment. Friends, have you realized Jesus can't come back and say, I'm going to take some of you to heaven and I'm going to have to leave the rest of you to perish in the lake of fire who wants to go to heaven? And so everybody lines up in one line. All the murderers, rapists and abusers are all in one line going to heaven. And the saints are standing and thinking, well, I'm not perfect. I'm probably not worthy of heaven. I should go to hell. Friends, God has to do his judgment before he comes back. He can't ask for hands up who wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. Well, nobody that I know anyway. Would you join me at the top of page five? Our new topic is the good news of the judgment. Remember tonight, we're looking at the good news and the bad news of the judgment. Amazing, exciting, wonderful news. God's judgment has already begun in heaven and has been going on there since 1844. To some people, judgment's scary and it's bad news. But in scripture, judgment is always treated as good news for God's people and not 
bad news. Can I ask you to stay with me to the end of the program tonight where I'm going to give you the story of Tom. And Tom is an amazing story, an amazing parable. And as we share that with you, we're going to explain what is the good news of the judgment and what is the bad news of the judgment. And I think you're going to really, really love it. Well, question 10 says, as we go to our new heading, the good news of the judgment, what is declared in heaven when God's judgments are made manifest? Revelation 19, and we'll look at verse 1. After these things, John writes, John the Revelator, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. See, not just 144,000 are in heaven. There's a great multitude of saints from the earth, and they're saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. What's declared in heaven when God's judgments are made manifest? They give him all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. They belong to the Lord our God. What a happy day that's going to be. It seems incredible, but all heaven goes into the greatest description of praise to God because he's manifested his judgments. But Revelation 14, 6 to 12, describes a special message that is to go into all the world at the end of time. It's symbolized by three angels flying in the midst of heaven and proclaiming this last day message. Question 11, what does the first angel's message proclaim about the judgment? We go to the first angel's message in Revelation 14 and verse 7. The first angel says, he says and cries out with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. There's our answer. What does the first angel's message proclaim about the judgment? The answer is the hour of his judgment has come. I like the King James Version. We're using the New King James Version in this Prophecy Seminar series. The King James Version says the hour of his judgment is come. It has come. It's on now. Notice the present tense of this verse on the screen. When this special message is proclaimed, the judgment is not future. It is not past. It's actually in progress. This message of a judgment in session could only be proclaimed since 1844. Friends, if you have a look on the screen, here are some of the Adventist pioneers back in the 1850s. This is the SDA chart. It's uh, nearly 180 years old and 180 years we've been preaching this. So I want to tell you the things that we're sharing with you tonight have not been made up in the last few years. Can you have a look at this chart? You can see the image of Daniel 2. You can see the beast of Daniel 7. In the middle, you can see the beast there of Daniel chapter 8. And then you can see the trumpets and Revelation is there as well and the papacy and et cetera, et cetera. So, friends, this is an exciting message. This is not a new message. This is a very, very old message. And God is bringing it out again to you. You are God's last day people. What do you say? Let all the people say, Amen. All right. We are doing question 12 at the bottom of page five why don't you come over the page what three injunctions are given as a result of the judgment being in session what are the three injunctions injunctions the angel says fear god there's one of them and give glory to him that's the second one for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water before I go on, I shouldn't even comment on that last part of the verse, but can anyone here tonight think of one way that we could worship God, we could deny evolution, 
and stand fully and confidently on God's word that he is the creator, how could we best worship him? I would suggest if you're unsure, you need to go and have a look at the fourth commandment. And in uh, Exodus 20, 8 to 11, especially verse 11, you'll find out that we need to worship the one who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the three injunctions, the three calls are to one, fear God, doesn't mean to be afraid of him, but to love him, honor him, respect him, and obey him. Number two, to give glory to him in living a life like Jesus did, to radiate Jesus, to mirror Jesus to others, the love of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the affirmation of Jesus. Are you and I doing that? Are we really a pleasure to see during the day? The people just can't wait till we, they, they meet us again because we're so happy and positive. Hmm. It might be worth thinking about. Finally, we're called to worship him who made heaven and earth. Again, we see praise, honour and worship given to God because he at last has convened the judgment. I have three questions that are not in the lesson. Have a look on the screen. I want to tell you tonight that Seventh-day Adventists can tell you the following answers to three questions. If we are asked where Jesus Christ is now when most other faiths don't have any idea, we will tell you he is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and he's been in there since 1844. We can answer the second question, what is Jesus Christ doing now? He's trying to finish the judgment. He's forgiving the sins of those who are praying to him and asking that the blood of Jesus be put over their sins and asking for overcoming power over their sin. Friends, soon that judgment will finish. And that's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. The judgment has to be finished. And in Revelation 15 verse 8, it says that smoke filled the temple. It doesn't mean there's a fire on there, but incense fills the temple. Symbolically, Jesus comes out of the most uh, holy place of the heavenly sanctuary because the judgment is finished. And then there's no longer any delay and Jesus will come back. So the heavenly judgment is on now. We are being weighed and judged. And so I want to share with you a story, the first of two stories tonight. So kick back and just relax. Here's story number one. This is a true story. It's the amazing story of a guy that I knew personally. His name was Lindsay Walwork. Lindsay Walwork was a burly truck driver that I knew when I was pastoring in Geraldton in Western Australia. Geraldton is four hours north of Perth on the Batavia coast and we lived at Sunset Beach. We lived in a place where every night we could go down there and watch the sun set into the sea if there were no clouds. Well my leading elder at the Geraldton church was Ray Jubler and we have become firm friends. In 2004, I was working in Brisbane at the Eight Mile Plains Church when Ray Giblet rang me and he told me an amazing story about Lindsay Woolwork. He rang me and said, David, do you remember Lindsay? And I said, I certainly do. He said, well, Lindsay came to my house a few days ago and said, Ray, I'm sick of going from this church to that church, to this doctrine, to that doctrine. I have got the Holy Spirit on full blast on me right now. And I believe that I have to be baptized and stop mucking around and join the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ray, start running the bath. Right. Brother, brother, what, what's happening? What, what, what's going on? 
So Ray sat him down and got the whole story. And Ray said to him, Lindsay, are you ready to commit your whole life to Jesus Christ? And Lindsay said, Ray, I've never been more ready. The Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven has rounded me up and I can't wait another day or another hour or another moment. I'm ready. Ray told me they knelt down on the floor, the carpet in his lounge room there in Rangeway in Geraldton and Ray led Lindsay Woolwork, the big burly truck driver to the Lord Jesus Christ and they prayed the sinner's prayer. As they stood up, Ray said to Lindsay as they shook hands, Lindsay, you and I are now brothers. We are true brothers. We are brothers in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to begin to plan your baptism. Lindsay said, Ray, I have a peace that I've never had before. And I'm just going out here, uh, walking on air. Friends, six hours later, Ray was identifying Lindsay's body at the morgue because Lindsay was dead. Lindsay Walworth got in his truck. He headed west, sorry, he headed east from Geraldton over to Mullawal and he had a big accident. He drove off the road in a semi-trailer and he died. Some think that Lindsay suffered a massive heart attack. That story gives me so much comfort and so much joy because I believe we're living right now in these last days in the day of judgment. Other churches don't talk about the judgment too much because the Ten Commandments, they said, was done away with at the cross. You can't have a judgment if there's no standard of judgment. You can't have people measured if there's nothing to measure them by. And so when they said the Ten Commandments were done away with, there's no need for any judgment. But this is Satan's lie. The Ten Commandments are not done away with. And I showed you last week, the Ten Commandments are where? They're up there in the golden box in heaven. The two tables of testimony, the Ten Commandments are in. The Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, just in front of where Jesus is ministering for your and my sins. I want to ask you tonight, are you ready? Am I ready if my life should end tonight? Am I ready if I signed up with Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then you only have to get down on your knees tonight by your bed and say, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy of heaven. But I want to ask you to forgive all my sins. I'm asking you to put them under the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I want to be forgiven of all my sins and come into my heart and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that that's now happened and I claim it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, none of us have a mortgage on this life. The Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, came to Lindley, to Lindsay Woolwork on that day and said to him, Lindsay, today is the day of salvation. And Lindsay listened to the Holy Spirit. And he knelt down and gave his heart to Jesus. And I believe that we will see Lindsay Warwick again in the kingdom of heaven. Let all the people say, Amen. Our next heading is on the screen. It's uh, two aspects of the judgment. The first aspect of the judgment is we're going to see how 
the little horn power counterfeited Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary, counterfeited it, duplicated it, and nearly destroyed it. The note says, in order to fully understand what's involved in this pre-advent judgment, we must examine why the sanctuary needed to be cleansed. Question 13, why does Daniel say that the sanctuary has to be cleansed? We go to Daniel 8, 13 and 14. Daniel hears the, uh, the two angels talking in heaven in his vision. The angel said, how long will the vision be concerning the giving of both the sanctuary, that's the heavenly sanctuary, and the host, God's people to be trampled underfoot? The answer was very clear. It would go on for 2,300 days. Then the sanctuary would be cleansed or restored. Why does Daniel say that the sanctuary has to be cleansed? Why does he say that? Because the sanctuary and the host are trodden underfoot. Friends, have a look on the screen. We're going to have a little break in our transmission and we are going to give you some extra information not in the lesson. Let me share with you uh, some extra information. So as you look on the screen, how was God's sanctuary and how were God's people trodden underfoot? It started first with pagan Rome attacking the Prince of Princes, who was Jesus Christ. And then it went through attacking all of God's people through the ages. And Fox's book of Christian Martyrs of the World is not a book to read before you go to sleep or before you have a meal. It is so confronting about how God's people have been killed the sheep are being slaughtered around the world by evil powers. Friends, can I remind you tonight how pagan Rome attacked the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ, when he was tried and sentenced? How they attacked and condemned Jesus Christ to being crucified, the most horrific way to die? How pagan Rome killed the Son of God? And then in New Testament times, pagan Rome again tortured Christians. Then pagan Rome sentenced early believers to death in the Roman Colosseum and in the Roman Circus Maximus. In fact, in 2003, I did a Reformation tour around Europe and saw all the places where the martyrs died. And I made up a video presentation on this called The Christian Martyr Files, Part 1, 2 and 3 that I have on DVD. If you want to see that, just let me know. Then as the Roman Empire dissolved, it fell away into the four, into the ten nations. The persecution and killing of believers moved from pagan Rome across to papal Rome. Papal Rome and was now done by the priests and the popes. Let me now tell you how the little horn power, meaning the papacy, tortured and killed God's especially faithful Bible-believing people called the Waldenses. They were named that after their founder, after the person who started the movement, who was known as Peter Walder. I'm going to read out the book Facts of Faith, page 131. And I misplaced my book, but eventually I found it. Here it is. Facts of Faith by Christian Edwardson. It's a very, very old book, but now it is actually online as a PDF, so you can actually find it. Let me read to you from page 84. What happened to these people? How did the little horn power conquer God's people during the Dark Ages. But while the Waldenses on the French side of the Alps were being exterminated, the Pope had a more difficult task to destroy them in the Piedmont Alps. From Pope Lucius III, who ruled from 1181 to 1185 to the Reformation in the 16th century, the persecution of the Waldenses was the subject of many papal decrees. 
army after army was sent against them and all manner of trickery was resorted to in order to destroy these honest plain christian people in 1488 albert cantoneo the papal ruler came with an army into the midst of the valley of louise val louise the inhabitants of the waldenses fled into a cave for shelter and the soldiers then started a fire at the mouth of the cavern and smothered the entire population of 3,000, including 400 children. Then Cantoneo entered the Piedmont side of the valley. Here the Waldenses retreated to Prada del Tor, their Shiloh of the valley. Shiloh, of course, remembered the name uh, from the Old Testament of the Old Testament sanctuary called Shiloh. Cantoneo ordered his soldiers into the dark, narrow chasm that formed the only path to the citadel. The poor Waldenses were now bottled up and their enemies were proceeding towards them, sure of their prey, but God still heard their earnest prayers. Let me read to you a quote. This is a photograph I took in the Waldensian church there uh, in Italy in 2003. I want to tell you about the destruction of the Waldensian people. It took place at 4 a.m. April 24, 1655, from Dr. Alexis Muston's book, Israel of the Alps, Volume 1, 349-350. Little children, Ledger says, were torn from the arms of their mothers, dashed against the rocks and cast carelessly away. The sick or the aged, both men and women, were either burned in their houses, or hacked to pieces, or mutilated, half murdered and flayed alive. They're exposed in a dying state to the heat of the sun, or to flames, or to ferocious beasts. Christian Edwardson says these people suffered tortures too terrible to mention, which only devils in human form could have invented. The towns in the beautiful valleys were left a smouldering ruin. A few people saved themselves by flight to the mountains. Friends, I just wanted to give you a little bit more of how God's sanctuary in heaven was defiled and how his people here on earth were smashed and trodden underfoot by the work of little horn power i do recommend fox's christian book of martyrs but not if you don't have a strong stomach let me read the note to you under question 14. daniel indicates that the reason why the sanctuary needs to be cleansed is the sin of a little horn power against god's people and against heaven Question 14, we're in the first aspect of the judgment. Why did the little horn, what did the little horn do to God's sanctuary that's made heaven so upset? We go to Daniel 8, 11 and 12. The little horn power even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. That's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by pagan Rome. And then later by papal Rome, the daily sacrifices were taken away in the place of his. God's sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the little horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. What the little horn power do to God's sanctuary? He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. In part B, what's the next thing he did? And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. There's our next answer. He took away the daily sacrifices. Then, part C, the place of his sanctuary was what? 
the place of God's sanctuary was cast down. How badly was God's sanctuary in heaven damaged? The place of his sanctuary was cast down. He cast something down to the something. In Daniel 8 and verse 12, and the little horn power cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and the scripture says he cast truth down to the ground. And the King James says he practiced and he prospered. Let me share with you the note. There are four great sins that Daniel charges the little horn in Daniel 8 that necessitate the cleansing of the sanctuary. Number one, he magnified himself to the prince of the host. This refers to the papacy's claim to be equal with God. Now, we covered a lot of this in Lesson 9, but I have for you two new quotes. This is from Pope Leo XIII, page 304 there, from his encyclical letters. This is what he said. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. He didn't say we're God's representatives. He said the popes take the place of God. That's how much power they have. Now, if you think I've misunderstood, another quote from the Catholic National Paper in July 1895. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Friends, that's a big call. And I want to tell you that the scripture says he magnified himself up to the prince of the host. Point number two. How did he take away the daily sacrifice? Well, friends, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, look on the screen. The daily referred to the work of the courtyard and the holy place, Christ's work of sacrifice and intercession. The little horn has destroyed God's work of sacrifice and intercession by instituting the daily sacrifice of the mass for the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Instead of Jesus Christ dying once for all on the cross, the papal system sacrifices Christ every time the Mass is conducted. This system also destroys Christ's work of intercession, his prayers for God's people, by causing people to turn to the confessional box and the priest for forgiveness of sin, instead of pointing them to the intercessory work of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus Christ, as our only mediator, forgives us of our sins would you join me at the top of page seven but please keep looking at the screen because this needs to be illustrated this is historical thirdly the place of god's sanctuary is cast down how did that happen the place of god's sanctuary in new testament times is the heavenly sanctuary instead of pointing people to the heavenly sanctuary where christ is minister the papal system has pointed them to an earthly priestly system so let's just get a grab and get a grasp and an understanding of what is God's temple on earth. In ancient times, it was the, uh, the uh, Old Testament sanctuary in the desert. In New Testament times, here it is, there's Herod's temple, which was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman army, army that came in and it was burned to the ground. But friends, today there is an earthly sanctuary that is said to be God's true sanctuary. This is St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City in Rome. Some of you might like to study what the word Vatican means. Please do. Friends, today, the mass of people, they travel from all over the world to do mass here, believing that this will bring them salvation. 
Friends, the fourth point was that the little horn power cast truth down to the ground. The papacy has taken the great truth of the heavenly sanctuary and made it an earthly system. As a result, people are trying to find salvation in an earthly system instead of seeking to find it in the heavenly sanctuary. Please have a look on the screen. I've got some extra for you. I'm going to share with you how Rome cast down truth in three more ways. Number one, Rome has placed divine tradition, that is the teachings of the Church of Rome, way above Holy Scripture. We've already discussed that in Lesson 9. Number two, they banned the use of the Old Testament and New Testament by lay members during the Dark Ages. Can you imagine being a Christian and not able to read God's Word? In faith of, um, in Facts of Faith, page 131, here's a decree by King Louis IX, the King of France, via the Church of Rome's Council of Toulouse, which happened in 1229 AD. What was their ruling? We prohibit also that the laity, laity just means laymen, laywomen, it means non-priests, church members, that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. So they were prohibited. They were not allowed to have the books of the Old or New Testament. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. Remember, they are in a foreign language. They are in Latin. So if they did get a Bible, they couldn't read it anyway. The third way, the Church of Rome cast truth down to the ground and practiced and prospered. She emphasized the role of the church, the role of the Church of Rome and the priest as being above the Bible. Because of these very doctrines that the Roman system comes, uh, because of these very doctrines, the Roman system comes under the judgment of God. It's partially because of this corruption that the sanctuary truth by the papacy that Daniel reveals that the sanctuary must be cleansed or restored in heaven to its rightful place, Daniel 8.14. Once again, people must be led to see the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Thus, we see that the sanctuary needs to be cleansed because the little horn has made the work of Christ a work on earth instead of a work in the heavenly sanctuary. Before we go on to the second part, just stick with me on the screen. How did Rome cast truth down to the ground? The Church of Rome takes away Christ's daily ministry for our salvation by number one. It's brought about an earthly priesthood, not a heavenly priesthood. Number two, an earthly confession system, the confessional box, when there's a heavenly one to Jesus Christ, our high priest. There's an earthly mediator, the priest or the pope, not Jesus Christ, the righteous in heaven. And then there's an earthly sanctuary at the Vatican and nobody is looking up to heaven knowing that today we live in the day of judgment. God sends his three angel messages in Revelation 14, 6 to 12. He's sending them to you tonight to warn you that this judgment is on now. Sinners in their sinful state cannot be taken to heaven. We can't have crooks chipping up the gold bricks out of the streets of gold. We can't have that. We can't have people breaking into each other's houses. Friends, God's people have to be safe to take to heaven. So I think we've expertly explained how the little horn power cast God's truth to the ground. It's a whole counterfeit system that takes away from the heavenly sanctuary. Well, what's the second aspect of the judgment? It's about forgiveness of sins and Jesus standing up for us. Question 15, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, what necessitated 
the cleansing of the sanctuary. We covered this last week. We'll go quickly, Leviticus 16, 16. So he, the priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness. It means the wickedness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of the meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Friends, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, what uh, caused the cleansing of the, of the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary, it was the wickedness of the people, their transgressions and all their sins. Please have a look at the screen. The second thing that necessitated the cleansing of the sanctuary was the sins of God's people had been transferred to the sanctuary through the ministry of Christ. These sins must be removed through a work of judgment in which it was shown that Satan, not God, is responsible for sin. Why? Because Satan started it all. He started to sin in heaven. Jesus said Satan in John 8.44 was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit saw Lucifer's direction, that he was a liar, he deceived one third of the angels, and he was a murderer, that one day he would murder the innocent Son of God. Since there are two things that defile the sanctuary, the judgment beginning in 1844 must be a twofold judgment. Part one, the judgment is for God's judgment is in favour of the saints, which are God's true people. Secondly, it must bring judgment for the horn. This judgment is against the little horn power. It is against the Church of Rome. In other words, there's a positive and a negative aspect to the judgment. There's good news and bad news. Positively, the judgment will decide in favour of the saints. Negatively, it will decide against the little horn power. Let's hurry into question 16. What message is preached as a part of the everlasting gospel? Revelation 6. Six and uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. Here's our answer. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. So I think some of you now know how to worship God correctly and what day to worship him on. What message is preached as a part of the everlasting gospel? The hour of God's judgment is come. It has come. It's on now. The gospel is the good news that Jesus forgives people of sin through his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary and that no man on earth or no system on earth or no church on earth can forgive sins. When people hear the gospel preached and appointed to the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is minister, the little horn ceases to have dominion over them. God's judgment on the little horn is heralded by this special, unique message of Revelation 14, 6 to 12, that preaches the beginning of the judgment in 1844 and exposes the fallacy of the little horn by pointing people to the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Remember, this message could only be preached since 1844, for it proclaims that the judgment is now in session. So, friends, in Lesson 13, we did the 2300-year prophecy in Daniel 8 and 9, as well as uh, uh, the ram and the goat. It was a big lesson, wasn't it? You remember 457, Jesus' baptism in AD 27. He was crucified in AD 31. 
he came on time, died on time, and he'll come back on time. And then Stephen was stoned, and the gospel went to the Gentiles. And so in AD 1844, friends, we are living in the day of judgment. How would people live their lives if they knew about the ongoing judgment? I hope tonight when you go to sleep and you kneel down by your bed that you'll ask God to cleanse you and forgive you for all your sins, put the Holy Spirit in your heart, give you a baptism of the Holy Spirit and anointing of God's will in your life and take away your fear. There is nothing to be a fear of. God is, Jesus is, about to finish the judgment and come back. That's our blessed hope. Question 17, who else is judged in the pre-advent judgment? We go to Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favour of the who? The saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Friends, God's people will be the victors. We will be on the side that overcomes, God willing. Judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. You cannot get better news than that. Well, a little girl was standing in a church with her grandma when she saw the stained glass window that you can see on the screen. And she said, Grandma, what is a saint? Before Grandma could answer, you know what children are like, they're very fast. She said, Grandma, I know what it is. Is a saint someone that the light shines through? Friends, I want to tell you, judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. And I don't think there's a better definition that we are to be saints, God's saints, people who Jesus' light shines through to make it a better world. The note says, similarly, the New International Version translates this test as follows. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the saints of the Most High, this pre-advent judgment that began in 1844 not only decides negatively against the little horn power, but decides positively in favour of God's people. Some may wonder why God has a judgment. It needs to be very clear in our thinking that God does not need to have a judgment in order to find out who's going to be saved. Now, I'm going to pause there because that's in the quiz. I'm going to read it again. God does not need to have a judgment in order to find out who's going to be saved. Underlined it. God already knows what's going. God already knows who's going to be saved. God is so fair and just that for the unfallen angels, he convenes this pre-advent judgment so that it'll be very clear to all of them. God has a right to save everyone and that he is about to take them to heaven. During this pre-advent judgment, beginning in 1844, God for the first time unveils to the angels and unfallen beings in heaven the names of the saved and then shows the whole universe why he's saving these people. Friends, we're living in the time of the pre-advent judgment. I'm asking you to look on the screen. Is your name written there on the page, white and fair? And so I'm asking you, is your name locked in to the book of life? Pray the sinner's prayer like Lindsay did. And you can know that Jesus is in your heart. Your sins are forgiven and read God's word and live God's word. And he will give you a powerful life. Question 18, with whom does Peter say judgment must begin? This is fascinating. Because people believe that the judgment must begin with the wicked. First Peter 4.17, for the time has come, Peter wrote, for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. Well, what does that mean? He said, and if it begins with us first, Christians, followers of Christ, what will be the end of those 
who do not obey the gospel of God. So friends, that is a challenge. Where does judgment begin? It starts first with God's people. This pre-advent judgment is primarily dealing with the righteous. It's God's vindication of his right to save people who fully surrender themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And I want to tell you tonight, the basis of all true obedience is love. Amen and amen. Well, who is to be my lawyer in the judgment in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1? John wrote, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's our answer. It's Jesus Christ. Friends, our advocate or lawyer in this pre-advent judgment is Jesus Christ. He will plead our case against Satan's charges. That's why the saints don't worry. That's why Christians are not anxious about the judgment. They know that Jesus Christ will never lose any case that's entrusted to him. The question that needs to concern me tonight is, is my case in Jesus' hands? Will he plead my case? The answer is, yes, he will. Well, I've asked you to stay to the end, and now I'm going to share with you this amazing story. This is a story. It's called The Good News and Bad News About the Judgment. It's a parable, and it's the story of Tom. It's by Morris Venden. Tom was a criminal, a really bad one. Not just your ordinary, everyday, small-town crook, no way. He was big time. He was a cheat, a liar, a robber, a gambler, an adulterer, and a murderer. He would sell his own mother if he thought it could get him what he wanted. He prided himself on having no scruples, on having done everything there was to do. But now he had been caught. He'd been arrested and Tom was in jail. As he sat in prison trying to figure out what his next move would be, he thought desperately of escape. He thought of suicide and neither was possible. He was too closely guarded. He practiced all sorts of speeches and denying his illegal activities, but none of them sounded convincing even to him. He was in big trouble and Tom knew it. The longer he sat there forced to think, the more despondent he became. The whole future looked black. It seemed that things couldn't possibly be worse. Worse, he was really at the end of his rope. Then one day, a prison official came to Tom's cell and said, Tom, I have some good news and I have some bad news for you. Tom looked up sullenly, yet deep inside he felt eager, eager for any change in the misery of sitting there day after day. He was helpless. He braced himself for the worst. Look, the good news is that a lawyer has been assigned to your case and he is the best lawyer in the whole world. Tom didn't react. He was silent. He knew there's a catch somewhere. And sure enough, there was. The official continued. Well, the bad news is the prosecuting attorney is also being assigned and he's the best prosecuting attorney in the whole world. Ha <laughs> ha. Tom remained silent. The prison official now shook his head. That lawyer must be crazy to think of defending you. Anyhow, I'm here to tell you he'll be here to see you tomorrow. With that, he turned and walked away. Well, the next day, a quiet sort of gentleman came to Tom's cell and knocked. Tom looked up startled and then laughed bitterly. You got the key, man, he said. What are you knocking for? Well, said the man, 
I only go where I'm invited. Well, come on in, said Tom. I wasn't going anywhere anyway. The visitor opened the door, entered and sat down. So who are you anyway, Tom asked. I'm a lawyer. I understand you're looking for a lawyer to take your case. Yes, said Tom. It's about time they finally sent me someone. You better tell me about your qualifications, you know. The officer here said you're supposed to be pretty good. But if you're really good, I may not be able to pay your price. Level with me so I can know what to expect. Well, said the lawyer, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that I have never lost a case. I can guarantee the outcome of the trial if you'll place yourself in my hands. And the bad news is the price, right, said Tom. The lawyer nodded. Okay, okay, lay it on me. How much is it going to cost me? It's free. I beg your pardon, said Tom. The lawyer responded, Tom, I said it's free. Hey, I'm not a rich man, but I don't need no charity, Tom said stiffly. If I can just get out of this dump, I can raise the money. I don't want to be in anyone's debt. The lawyer smiled kindly. No, Tom, if you want my help, you must accept my help as a gift. You cannot pay me for any part of it. It's totally and completely free. It's one of the conditions for my taking your case. Tom was silent for a few minutes and then asked, what are the other conditions for receiving your help? Well, the lawyer replied, I have some more good news and bad news for you. The good news is that all you have to do, if you want me to take your case, is just ask me and I'll take it immediately. The bad news is if I take your case, you're going to have to plead guilty. Tom gasped. Well, aren't you guilty, said the lawyer. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, oh, yes, but if I plead guilty to all the charges made against me, I won't have a ghost of a chance. They'll throw the book at me. How can you possibly think that you'll be able to help me if I plead guilty? Well, said the lawyer, I have some bad news for you and I have some good news for you. The bad news is, if you plead guilty, of course you're going to be convicted. And if you don't plead guilty, well, the prosecuting attorney has sufficient proof you're going to be convicted anyway. Either way, Tom, there's no doubt at all that you're going to get the death penalty. Ah, oh, said Tom, well, why even have a trial? Ah, said the lawyer, Tom, you've forgotten that I have some good news. I am willing to take your sentence, Tom, and let you go free. What? No way, said Tom. You aren't the one who's lived a rotten life. I'm the one. I've done nothing good. I don't deserve anything but death. Hanging's too good for me. There's no way I'm going to let you pay for my crimes. Once again, the lawyer said very softly, but Tom, I've already paid for your crimes. All that remains for you is to accept my substitution on your behalf. It's yours if you'll accept it. And it's complete. It'll cover completely for all of your crimes. After a long time, Tom asked quietly, Hey, is there anything else I should know before the trial? The lawyer nodded. Yes, Tom, I have some good news 
for you and I have some bad news for you. The good news is that you will be pardoned. There's no question about it. You'll be able to stand before God and man as though you'd never sinned. There may be some bad news for you. Well, what's that, said Tom? It's this, Tom. You won't be a criminal anymore. What? What do you mean, said Tom? Well, you'll be a new person. You'll have a new direction. There is more to my work than simply paying the penalty for your misdeeds. I have even more to complete in your life. And while you're waiting for your trial to take place, you won't continue to lie and cheat and steal and kill. You'll become pure and honest and trustworthy and we will work closely together, you and I. We're going to become good friends. As we associate together, day by day, you will come to hate the things you once loved and love the things you once hated. You are going to become a new person altogether, Tom. Oh, I'm not so sure about that, said Tom. The prospect of pardon looks pretty good to me. But what if I want to go my own way? Can't we just arrange it so I can be, I don't know, released from the penalty of my actions? Isn't that complete enough? Do I really have to stop being a crook? Well, said the lawyer, the pardon is only good for those who are willing for me to give them a new life. Tom stared at the floor while the lawyer waited patiently for his decision. At last, Tom raised his head. I would like you to take my case, he said. I will admit I am guilty and I really don't want to keep on being a crook. So yes, I will accept your help. The lawyer rose and held out his hand. Tom took it firmly and the contract was sealed. Is there anything else I should know before you leave? Yes, said the lawyer. There's one final thing. I have one last bit of good news and bad news for you. Tom smiled. Give me the bad news first and get it over with, although all of a sudden it doesn't seem as though any of your bad news has been all that bad. The lawyer smiled too. All right. The bad news is, Tom, that we've already set the date for your trial, the day of judgment. Why? That's not bad news at all, exclaimed Tom. With a lawyer like that, do you think I'd even want to stay here in this place forever and never come to have my case go to court? The news of the coming judgment is terrific news and your good news better be pretty good to outdo that. The lawyer looked into Tom's eyes for a moment before he said gently, the good news is this, Tom. When you come to trial, I will not only be your lawyer, but I will be your judge as well. And that's the end of the story of Tom the criminal. I want to finish this story with this question. Is the dual role of the lawyer and judge biblical? Is it? Well, I'm sure some of you are saying yes. In 1 John 2, 1, we already read, if any man sin, we have an advocate. It means a lawyer, a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our mediator. Not any priest, not any ruler of any church. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, he has the right to save us. He is our lawyer. But what about our judge? Jesus said in John 5.22, his own words, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment under who? The answer is the Son. Why is the Father stepping back from the judgment? He's there and he's involved, but he's not the main man. 
friends, many people have realised that God the Father never came down to planet Earth. He's kind of remote a bit up there. He's the director of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the chief actor. He's the star of the show. And the Holy Spirit is the best supporting actor, to put it in Hollywood terms. Friends, Jesus came down here and lived and died here. He knows how rough it is. He knows what it's like to be abused, to be tortured, to be crucified. And he knows what it is to bear the burden of sin. Friends, can you understand why Jesus Christ is the one who's fit to be our judge? And so it's come true, isn't it, that our defence lawyer is Jesus Christ and the chief prosecuting attorney is Satan. The question tonight is, whose hands do you want to be in? And whose hands are you going to sign your life away into? Satan holds a gun to your head and says, sign up with me. I'll give you power and the kingdoms of this world and everything you can dream of. And Jesus said, I'm just going to give you eternal life. I want you to think about that. Is that a hard decision? Question 20 as we close tonight. Do you wish to engage Jesus Christ as your lawyer in the judgment that's now going on in heaven? Well, I've put again, yes, I do. I sign up with Jesus every day. Every day I ask him to be with me, to be the Lord of my life, the God of my salvation, to cleanse me from sin, to put me under the blood of Jesus and make me totally right with him. And so if anything happens to me, like what happened to Lindsay, that, that big semi-trailer went off the road, hit a tree, and Lindsay died in the rig. If anything like that happens to me, then I've already signed up with Jesus Christ, the righteous. friends. Whose hands do you want to be in? If you've not yet asked Jesus Christ to save you, you are looking forward to the bad news of a guilty verdict, eternal death and destruction. And uh, we're going to be studying about that in our next lesson. If you have signed up with Jesus or you want to ask Jesus to be your lawyer and judge, you can expect very good news indeed. And that tonight is the good news and the bad news of the judgment. This illustration seems contradictory, but it shows Jesus in the two roles. He stands up and he represents us, and then he judges. Friends, I want to tell you tonight that Jesus is our lawyer, he's our friend, he's our counsellor and advocate, but he then goes up and rules. Not that we're not guilty, we're not not guilty, we are acquitted under the blood name and power and authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of Kings and Lord of Lords to the glory of the Father. Let all the people say, Amen. What's the pre-Advent judgment? God decides the fate of everyone prior to the second coming of Christ. When did it begin? It began at the end of the 2300 days, years in 1844. Why does the sanctuary need to be cleansed? The sanctuary became full of the sins of people needing forgiveness and cleansing. So symbolically in heaven, it has to be cleansed and on earth, the blood had to be cleaned off the instruments in the holy place and the most holy place, the smell of the blood, the stickiness of the blood, the dried blood and the stench. Number four, why does the little horn power get judged? This horn power has opposed and counterfeited Jesus Christ and God's work on earth and taken the attention away from heaven. Finally, do I stand alone doing the heavenly judgment? No. You and I have a lawyer and an advocate 
who is also a heavenly judge. I'm asking you tonight, how can we lose? Thank you so much for those who are still uh, hanging in with the quiz and uh, for lesson 15. I look forward to getting those from you tonight. I'll be uh, putting the quiz results in straight after the program and uh, marking the role. That's why I really appreciate you guys put your names on here for the Zoom. Question one, if it's clear to you from the study of these past three lessons, the pre-advent judgment began in 1844 at the end of the 2300 days. I'm asking you to place a tick in box number one or to say yes in your heart. Number two, is it your desire to engage Jesus Christ as your lawyer and friend so he can plead your case when your name comes up in the heavenly judgment, which is now on? Please put a tick in box number two. All right, tonight our quiz is, I think, three of one and two of the other. Let's see how we go. Number one, the pre-advent judgment occurs after the reign of the little horn, according to Daniel 7. True or false? The pre-advent judgment occurs after the reign of the little horn, according to Daniel 7. True or false? Two, when the judgment begins in heaven, no one on earth knows it's going on. Wow, so how do we know? <laughs> Number three, the pre-advent judgment decides positively in favour of the saints, but negatively against the little horn power. So the good news is of the judgment in favour of the saints. The bad news, it's against the little horn power who is trying to destroy God's people and God's kingdom. Number four, the reason God has a judgment is to find out what the angels have written in the books so he can decide who he's going to save, true or false. I don't think you'll too long, need too long to work that one out. Number five, the sanctuary message in the everlasting gospel is used by God to destroy the influence of the little horn power. All right, there are our five questions. Thank you so much for writing on your lesson, uh, on your uh, envelopes there, true or false. Question number one, the answer is true. Question number two, the answer is false. Question number three, the answer is true. Question number four, the answer is false. And question number five, the answer is true. Friends, shock and horror, we have actually finished Daniel 7 and 8 tonight and should not be returning there again. What have we learned? The pre-advent judgment has started. And from now, we are moving away into the New Testament and into the book of Revelation for the rest of the lessons. Please take some time out to prepare lesson number 16. Next week, we're going to look at the thousand years. This is an amazing period of time. It involves the judgment. It also involves heaven. What a wonderful time we're going to have together next week. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight we've heard the gospel that makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance. And tonight, Lord, we give you all the praise and the glory because you are an awesome God who is not only our lawyer and our friend, but also our judge. I pray for everyone who will hear this message, that everyone here physically with us tonight and then later who will watch online will sign up with Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To the glory of the Father is my prayer tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. been 
listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.